Dr. George, there's been an alarming rise in youngsters with eating disorders of late, another distressing cost of the uh, COVID lockdown. And the UK's leading eating disorder charity, Beat, sees an 81% increase in calls to its helpline since March. What is it in the mental psyche of, of children that's causing the rise in eating disorders in relation to sort of lockdown and their development? Actually, when you become so focused on food, shape or weight issues, you and neglect other aspects of your life this may be warning signs of an eating disorder it's actually thought to affect one in 20 people and it's more common of course in adolescents and females more than males and there are three types of eating disorders including anorexia nervosa bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder the cause of eating disorders is thought to be actually three-pronged first personality traits like rigidity and perfectionism second is a traumatic or difficult life event and lastly a trigger and the stress of lockdown is a sure trigger for many those who are vulnerable also tend to be the kinds of people who need structure and routine in their daily life to feel calm that lockdown takes this all away so people look to something else to control and diet and exercise is an easy choice. So many are suddenly using food as a way to control a situation that is so unstable and unpredictable. Right. What are the factors of social media and the fact that these kids are predominantly all, you know, they're online and they have this available to them and there's already the pressure out there with the, you know, the compare and contrast that they have already as young people growing up in this era. What sort of percentage of the contribution do you think that is to as you were talking about this, you know, lack of uh, feeling of control. Yeah, I think it plays a huge role. I mean, famous pivotal study done back in the 50s in, you know, a country that didn't have media, didn't have even television, uh, found that being obese or being, you know, just slightly overweight was attractive. That men and women thought that they were attractive being that size. Mm. until the onset of television and media came in and changed perceptions Mm. and the first eating disorders happened about 10 years after the introduction so for sure social media and every other media is having an impact and it's it's the way that advertisements are pushed as well that beauty is relevant to you know thinness or slimness and which is not really true dr george nearly half of new and expectant mothers feel anxious or nervous while they're you know pregnant and more than three quarters say the corona virus a pandemic has added to their fears according to research now we know it's normal to feel anxious but with COVID-19 there's a lot more going on in situations where there's a lot of anxiety and huge levels of stress going on there could you help us sort of identify perhaps the key main ones so that it can be recognized and perhaps um, you know discussed as an open uh, topic of conversation Yeah, so this survey was done in the UK suggesting that nearly half of new and expectant mothers feel anxious or nervous, while more than three quarters say that the coronavirus pandemic has added to their fears. The survey suggests that most of the increased anxiety was due to common myths related to pregnancy and the increased negative unverified information of COVID-19. In fact, a study published in the Archives of Women's Mental Health 2020 found high levels of pregnancy-related anxiety among 2,000 1,740 pregnant women that were studied. Wow. It was close to two-thirds of the population. That's huge. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. the most common factors were stopping face-to-face prenatal visits and changing birth plans because, you know, a lot of the women said, well, maybe I don't want to go to hospital. Mm-hmm. And as well as fear of food running out, you know, um, which, you know, typically everyone has when you have a lockdown. Mm-hmm. But others included increased tension and conflict in the home or the fear of getting infected. Mm-hmm. And another significant factor in our setting, especially in Malaysia and Asian countries, is the lack of the extended family support. You know, many pregnancies are proceeding without grandparents being significantly involved due to, you know, travel restrictions and fear of contagion. That's a huge support system lost, especially for first time, you know, Asian mothers. Or any mothers. I know my sister was, uh, you know, pregnant and gave birth during the first uh, last year. And so, you know, it was difficult not being able to be there. Yeah. So I think I know a few women here who are pregnant um, and, you know, things are not changing. In fact, they're a bit worse here for us in Malaysia. So what would you say that women or the support system, they may or may not be close to them, but the support system nonetheless can do to help women who are pregnant during these times with, you know, recognizing the mental health and their anxieties and their problems? Yeah. Yeah. So actually, there are a few things that mothers can do to help themselves. I think the first thing is to talk about it. If you're feeling very anxious during your pregnancy, it's important to tell someone they all may be able to offer support. Speaking to a mental health professional is also helpful. It's not a sign of weakness to seek mental health support. If you have a fracture, you go in and see an orthopedic surgeon and get that sorted. So there's no reason why, you know, seeking help for anxiety is anything of a weakness. What can husbands do to help? Yeah, I was going to say husbands and also, you know, anybody else. Yeah. First, they need to lend that understanding here. Don't sort of, you know, minimize it and push it away and say, you know, grow out of it, be strong. And that's all rubbish. And work with them through that process of helping them through that stress and anxiety. You know, do that exercise together. Do that breathing exercises together. You know, understanding their feelings and emotions and get better understanding about anxiety itself as well. Dr. Philip George, uh, there was an article about a London-based mental health clinic providing family services, and they recently unveiled a refined interior to ensure emotional as well as physical comfort to their clients. Huh. How does a refined interior design help mental health patients? Is that a true thing or is that a rubbish thing? You know, I personally am a bit old-fashioned and enjoy the typical clinical setting for consultation. Like plastic chairs? Well, no, no more comfortable stuff because we sit for quite a while. Uh, But, you know, I always like to consider myself a doctor first and then a psychiatrist. But of late, I work in different settings and I see the benefits of refined interior design to help with patients feeling comfortable and more at ease. Um, Our physical environment is actually constantly influencing our emotions and general well-being. Like it or not, it has an influence. So the design of clinics and counseling rooms may actually affect the therapeutic experience of, you know, mental health clients, as well as the experience of the therapist themselves, you know, because you actually have uh, a role which takes on a lot of stress. And so you have to have an environment that actually helps you with that whole process as well. So that includes, you know, the layout of the room, um, because that will affect the patient's perceptions of psychological safety mm-hmm. or willingness to self-disclose and even to build therapeutic rapport uh, and also feel a sense of caring in that space. In fact, there is a suggestion that poorly designed consultations or waiting rooms may increase patient anxiety and give the wrong impression that 
you know, the individual will not get the right level of care as well. Yeah, that you just what you said reminds me of the I don't know if it's called the white coat syndrome, whereas you kind of go in fine and then suddenly it's like because of the stress of where you're at and how the setting is, your blood pressure shoots up and stuff. So when they check you, it's like, oh, you've got a blood pressure problem. Right, but right. really, you don't. It's yeah, because yeah. the environment's just yeah, really rubbish. If you're OCD like me, I go in, I'm like, oh my goodness, that, that artwork is saying it a bit like I'm very stressed <laughs> out, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, so, but, so we should do vaccinations <laughs> out of your studio. <laughs> I was worried about what you're going to say there. Out of his what? Um, so is there a science behind this sort of layouts and stuff? I mean, what springs to mind when you're talking is like, how do you feng shui the place in a scientific manner with real data so that, you know, people do feel better? Because it doesn't necessarily mean expensive does it? No, well, actually, there is a strong link between interior design choices and mental health. Uh, as humans, we are actually sense-reliant creatures. So colors, textures, and patterns, as well as availability of space, all of this can impact our view of the world and even our own self-perception. So there's a, there is actually a link between excessive clutter and anxiety or even depression. So keeping spaces well-organized and airy does result in a much better mental predisposition. Proper organization and aesthetics within a room also results in sensations of, you know, peacefulness and mindfulness as well. We're talking about new research that suggests depression, stress and loneliness can weaken the body's immune system, which could reduce the effectiveness of vaccines. But some experts feel there isn't a direct relation between mental health disorders and vaccine efficacy. What are your thoughts about this from a psychiatric... What are your thoughts about this from a psychiatric standpoint? Well, actually changes in how our brain functions can have a big effect on our body. The brain is the center of command. So if it's functioning less than optimum, then you can expect that it'll cascade to effects on the physical body and our immune system because there's increasing levels of stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline. And this definitely affects our immune system. So depression, stress and anxiety can make it harder for your body to fight infection. Some vaccines have actually been shown, like shingles vaccine has actually, uh, already been shown, to maybe be less effective in older adults with depression. But this is not unique to just mental disorders. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the same response with chronic medical conditions like those with diabetes, chronic liver disease or chronic kidney failure and others. The correlation is, you know, not so simple. Sometimes it can actually increase instead of decrease immune response. So yeah, I think we just need to be wary about it, that the vaccine efficacy may alter. And usually it's not a direct relationship, but, you know, it's through these different mediated forms of diseases and disorders that affect our immune system. So if your surroundings are really, really good, we always hear, sometimes we speak to Dr. Rajman saying he always talks about blue zones. Okinawa, yeah. people live healthier, they live longer lives and whatnot. That means yeah. technically, to those people in the blue zones, that means, let's say the COVID vaccine, will it work better for them? Do they not even get affected by COVID in a way? Yeah, so like you said, blue zones are the regions of the world where there's a higher than usual number of people living much longer than average. Uh, you know, there are five zones that have identi been identified, Okinawa, Sardinia, Nicoya, Ikaria, and, and Bangsa. No, Bangsa? No. <laughs> uh, no. Okay. Astro. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, in these blue zones, people are, well, are suggested to regularly live till not, to 90, if not 100. And the main ingredients are lifestyles that make a lasting impact, including diet, exercising, socializing, and a sense of purpose. 
So, yeah, I guess, you know, being able to live those long, healthy lives will definitely strengthen their immune system. So I guess for the, the takeaway from this um, for a layperson is really focus on what's going on emotionally because we tend to sort of like push those away or not deal with them or think we'll deal with them later. But in actual fact, they directly affect our physical health, yeah. um, perhaps in indirect ways, but they directly affect it. There's a huge correlation connection. Um, and oh, that's absolutely. one way yeah. to help us actually fight COVID is to to yeah. pay more attention to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a lifestyle change. And I think it's, you know, not just uh, looking at controlling stress and anxiety, but also diet and, you know, exercising and socializing. All of this are characteristics of those in the blue zone. Multiple studies have linked glycemic variability in midlife to cognitive decline in diabetics. New research from the University of Cambridge suggests high insulin levels and BMI changes in childhood could signal a greater risk of psychosis and depression as a young adult in otherwise healthy patients. What exactly does this mean or does this research suggest that the ins- and also the insulin levels directly, do they correlate to psychosis, i.e. the higher the levels, the deeper the psychosis and depression? Well, actually, these are exciting and interesting results results from an analysis of children through the Avon longitudinal study of parents and children uh, in the UK. That's a mouthful. But yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting because it actually suggests that high insulin levels and BMI changes, the physical changes in childhood could actually increase the risk of psychosis and depression as a young adult in otherwise, you know, healthy patients. So the investigators suggest you know, the importance of diet and physical activity throughout life as avenues to modify risk of developing these disorders. You know, previously it was thought that people with psychosis or depression may develop poor diet and lower levels of physical exercise because of their, you know, psychiatric condition. And, you know, whatever physical health problems comes after that is a result of that mental disorder or the treatment for it. You know, very often people are quick to blame the treatment. Mm But this study actually suggests that for some individuals, it may be the other way around, that physical health problems detectable from childhood might actually be the risk factors for adult psychosis and depression. It is interesting how the body works and masks itself and how sort of um, diet and lifestyle plays a huge part in how your body is functioning. Because if you think about it, it's it's all about chemicals. And I mean, this is coming from a layperson like myself, right? But it's like your, your chemicals and stuff. That's what's really going on in your body. Yeah. Right. So how then for those who've had health scares in adulthood, right, if they start to get physically healthy, would this improve their mental state? Well, you know, sadly, once you have an illness, it oftentimes is not reversible by lifestyle changes alone. Uh, Lifestyle changes are important and essential in the road to recovery. But you've already triggered a physical change in the neurochemicals in the brain that requires intervention more than lifestyle change. You know, just like diabetes, there's that pre-diabetic stage, you know, your blood sugars are a little bit on the rise, uh, you know, occasionally they're back to normal. And so you just do a diet control and exercise and you might actually prevent the onset of diabetes. But once you go beyond pre-diabetes to real diabetes, you have to be on treatment, you have to be on medication, and you need to do the lifestyle change as well. 